would be embarrassing as the, the tech person to forget to turn the microphone on, wouldn't it? Um, thank you, Abby. So yeah, Joe is uh, asked uh, if I would uh, preach this morning. Um, so uh, let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us all to meet together, Lord. You have the words of eternal life. Please speak to each of us what you want each of us to hear, Lord. Amen. Um, as you see from that, I'm talking about Noah this morning. The reason I'm talking about Noah is because uh, my son Daniel back there, and he knew I was going to mention this, um, asked me a few months ago, he said, next time you preach, preach on Noah. Because um, you hear Noah a lot uh, in Sunday school and so on when you're growing up. It's a very, very common story to hear as a, as a child. But he said, I've never heard a sermon on Noah. So I said, absolutely fine. Next time I preach, I'll preach on Noah. Next time I preached, I completely forgot that I'd said that. Um, so I didn't. But this time I remembered. So apparently these days I take requests. <laughs> the, uh, not from you. <laughs> um, so the story of Noah is probably very well known to all of us. Um, and so uh, what I'm going to be doing is reading through the account in Genesis of Noah and then uh, tackling some questions that arose in my mind as I was going through it and then hopefully drawing all that together into something coherent at the end that we can uh, take away as a message. For those of you who know the story of Noah, you'll also be, may, may be aware that it takes up uh, about three and a half chapters in Genesis, so we're not going to be reading the whole thing, okay? Sigh of relief from some people there. Um, we don't have time. But again, bearing in mind that I expect you know the majority of it anyway, hopefully you can follow along. So, so yeah, the first thing we'll do is just read the story. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry, sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person. I think you may have clicked out of it. So, Can you press F5 again? There we go. Um, okay. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. 
Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family, for among all the people of the earth I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. Seven days from now I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for forty days and forty nights, until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the, sixth of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For forty days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat higher above, high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. All the living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the, the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat, and all of the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had, <coughs> me, had been approved for that purpose. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. 
I've placed them in your power. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were in the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine he'd made, and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. Odd place to stop, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there, and that's the abbreviated version. Um, and as I mentioned, I, I was, as I was reading it, a bunch of questions came to my mind. So, uh, diving right in, the first question that came to my mind was, why doesn't God do what he says he will? At the very beginning of this passage, God says, I'm going to wipe out everything. In fact, a couple more times he says, I'm going to wipe out everything. But then he doesn't. He still leaves some alive. And it's kind of puzzling. It's what the world deserved. He clearly says it's what the world deserved. Um, but I think one of the key moments occurs very early on where it says, it broke his heart. In other translations, it says it grieved his heart. He was hurt. And it reminded me of uh, a passage in Hosea, where um, Hosea, if you know the book of Hosea, it's a very interesting book. We don't have time to go into it. But uh, God in Hosea is, is a, Hosea is a prophet, and he's telling the people of Israel how God is going to judge them. He's going to do, you know, punish them and so on. And then we suddenly, after all these, this talk from God about how he's going to judge them and punish them, suddenly he said, this is what God says. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me, and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. I love how interesting it is there, how God ties the fact that he will show mercy with the fact that he is God. God is mercy. God always wants to give a way out. When he describes himself to um, Moses at one point, he says, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. That's who God is. He wants to give a way out. He wants to give an opportunity. Um, and he looks and he sees one, which is Noah. So the second question I had was, why a flood? Have you ever thought about that question? Why a flood? Um, God could have, for example, sent fire from heaven. He did, does that later with Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have just gone, poof, everything gone. Uh, he could have done a plague, for example, um, and just kept Noah and his family safe from the plague. So why a flood? And I think there's quite a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think... Mo so, so here's some of those reasons. Is um, Firstly... God wanted to rescue a family, but he wanted to rescue a family 
in the midst of everybody else. So he could, for example, have said to Noah and his family, go off somewhere, go off to an island, I'll send a plague on everybody, everybody dies, you come back. No, he wants to rescue them where they are. Because what happens is Noah has work to do. Because it's a flood, Noah has to do something to rescue himself and his family and the animals. And so as he's working in the midst of everybody else, they see him, and this is an opportunity for them to ask, why the heck are you building a boat? Um, and he can explain. And they have this chance. Not only is he building a boat, but as far as we can tell, it took him about 100 years to build this boat. So people had a lot of opportunity. So that's another reason why the flood, because it takes time. If God just went boom, like that, end of story, people didn't have that opportunity. But instead, because it's a flood, and there's a boat involved, there is time. And so God's patience is shown. Uh, and the people have the opportunity to repent. It actually says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, which we'll come back to later, that Noah preached to them as well. Now, whether he went out in the streets and, and preached to them, or whether he was just, when they came and asked why he was building the boat, told them God's judgment is coming. Either way, they're hearing the message. And so, yeah, there's multiple different reasons there, I think, why God chose a flood rather than something which could have just happened suddenly or something which didn't involve Noah doing any work. Noah had to do something about this. The third question I had was, why, why even do this? Um, there's a verse afterwards which I meant to put on the screen, but uh, somehow got missed off. But um, where after the flood, when Noah's doing the sacrifices, God is talking to himself and saying, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. So after the flood, God is still saying, it's all a mess. Everything they think or imagine is, is bent toward evil. So what did this accomplish then? And maybe it did quell things a little. Uh, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, um, when God uh, distur disrupts everyone, um, it didn't stop the evil that was happening, but it kind of reduced it for a while. And maybe we don't know what things were like before the flood. Apparently they were very bad. Um, but maybe what God did uh, did quell things for a while. But I, I think there's multiple other things we learn. But here's the, here's the number one thing we learn from the flood. And I say it's the number one thing because when, it, when the flood is referred to in the New Testament, this is what they say about it every time. And that is this, God does judge, and God will judge. If we didn't have the flood, we could potentially say, well, you know, God's never going to judge. It's all, you know, it's all good. There are little bits in here, little bits there. But what we see here is that God has both the ability and the willingness to judge evil. And as I say, in the New Testament, that's what comes up again and again when it's re referenced is God judged then, he's going to judge again. 
And here's an odd one. Some of this gets a bit nerdy. Sorry about that. I think it's interesting. Uh, why, next question, why are there repeated references? I don't know if you noticed that as I went through there. There's repeated references to Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives. And there's repeated references to the different kinds of animals. God doesn't say all the animals. He repeatedly says things like um, the birds, the big animals, the little animals, the animals that scurry along the ground, and so on. It's, it's actually said that Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, is, is said five times in that passage. The different kinds of animals are referenced in that sort of way 12 times in that passage. Three of, them, three of those refer to the, time, the, the ones who were destroyed. The other nine refer to the ones on the boat. Uh, if I was writing this, I would just say, yeah, the, peop- the ones on the boat, you know? Um, but he repeatedly says the big animals, the little animals, the wild animals, the domestic animals, there's ones that scurry along the ground, the birds. Um, so why mention all of that? And I think there are two reasons for that. One is because this whole story is actually told as a story of recreation. Um, this is where it gets even more nerdy, but it's called a chiasm. Um, basically, the story has a kind of going down point and then hits a moment where it says, God remembered Noah, and then from there it goes upward. And so the idea is the old is being destroyed, the new is now coming. And so what God says about these animals, you know, the big animals, the small, and so on, is exactly what he said back in Genesis chapter 1 about his creation. And you'll notice right at the end, he then, the first thing he says to them all after they get off the boat is, go out there and multiply, which is exactly what he'd said in Genesis chapter 1. So this is a new start, a fresh start. So I think that's part of it. But the other reason, I think, is this. Noah didn't just save himself. He saved others too. He saved his family, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives. He saved animals of every shape and size because he was faithful to God. It's the, there's that verse where God says, I will rescue you because I found you alone are righteous. And the word he uses there for you is singular. It's Noah who's righteous. We don't know anything about his family. We have no idea. Maybe they thought he was nuts. You know, maybe they, maybe they helped him build the boat. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. Um, maybe they just went along because he's the father of the family, so you know, we just do what we're told. We don't know, but we do know that Noah saved others by his righteousness. He built a boat big enough for everybody else. He built a boat big enough that if the people around him had uh, wanted to, they could have joined him. They didn't even have to do any work. They could just say, I want to be on board, and they could have done it. So, the last question I had was, what is Noah's righteousness? Um, at the very beginning of the story, again, we're told he's righteous. God sees him and sees he's the only righteous one. But what was his righteousness? We're not told what he's done up to this point at all. Just told he's righteous. Um, but I think in the story itself we see what his righteousness is Uh, I don't know if you notice again a couple of times there it says um, Noah did exactly what the Lord commanded him and that is strongly emphasized he obeys God 
in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, as you probably all know, is a chapter which lists uh, a lot of people, men and women, of faith in the Old Testament. And this is what it says about Noah. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Do you see, it's interesting. God starts the thing by, uh, uh, in Genesis saying he's righteous, but actually this talks about how he receives righteousness because he builds the boat. And so the putting into action of his righteousness kind of confirms who he is. He trusts God. God comes to him and tells him that something is going to happen that has never happened before. And he trusts God. It's possible, given what we know from the, from the beginning of Genesis, it's possible it may never have even rained before. Because the water before that came out from under the earth. But Noah trusts God that this is going to happen. And he's willing to spend 100 years building a boat when nobody else is listening or interested. Everyone around him thinks he's a fool. He preaches. He's the, the least successful preacher in history because he preaches for a hundred years, and at the end of a hundred years, not even one person joins him. That's got to be hard. Imagine that. Think about the realization that he's not preaching, I personally think this anyway, he's not preaching like a kind of brimstone and hellfire preacher, he's preaching because he cares for these people, he wants them to be saved, and he comes in every day thinking, why won't they listen? Why won't they care? Why won't they... They listen to me. And it reminds me, actually, when you think about it, that God had that exact same experience with the people of Israel, where he's preaching through his prophets and so on, over and over and over again for hundreds of years, and they won't listen. And he knows what it feels like to talk and talk and talk and have people just not listen to you. And Noah, it's so interesting there, you notice it says, by faith, by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world. He's not trying to condemn them. It's just that by him doing the right thing, he shows up those who are not. So, that was a bunch of my questions on this passage, but what's the point of it? Um, There's a lot of different things you can draw from it. I just want to try and try and pull together hopefully something you can can take as a a sort of consistent point here. Firstly, God has judged and will judge again. This past act is a stark reminder of the future. Uh, It's not a message people want to hear any more than they did in Noah's day. But God has said he will judge. But he is the same God. He has provided a means to escape judgment. Jesus is both the boat and Noah. He's the one whose righteousness provides us with the means of escape from the judgment. And all we have to do is accept his invitation and get on the boat. That's all we have to do. He's done the work. He's built the boat. He's done the thing for us. And he is our salvation. We have to come to him. In Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, it says this, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, 
Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Anyone can get on that boat. But like uh, the story of Noah, do you know, note at one point it says, uh, actually, we, yeah, it says the door clo- Lord closed the door behind him. There came a certain point where the door closed and then it was too late. And um, that is the same with us today. And so it would be unfair of me not to, st- at least at some point here, make that point. If there's any of you who have not made that choice to trust him, to accept what he has done for you so that you can be saved from God's judgment, then this is the day to do it. Because we don't know when that door is going to close. So God has provided a means to escape judgment, and that is Jesus. But we have work to do. I mentioned that Jesus is both Noah and the boat, but we now have a responsibility and a role to play. Because we're not, it's not our place to go, okay, right, I'm going to sit on the boat and uh, the rest of the world can go to hell. That's fine. Um, I'm safe. We are supposed to invite others because judgment is real. Um, I mentioned, I don't know if you noticed at the beginning on the first slide, I said, Noah, what if everything is wrong? In Noah's day, everything was wrong. And it got me thinking about something with our lives today. Here's something I wrote a a few months ago, actually. What if everything is wrong? Instead of focusing on the big sins that catch our fancy, do we see that the fact that sports stars get paid millions is wrong? That the person who sits and watches TV all evening is wrong. That failure to bring up my children in closeness to God is wrong. That spending billions as a society on the latest technological gadget while people starve around the world is wrong. That selfish pride is wrong. That fiddling expenses is wrong. That gluttony is wrong. That holding a political line and demonizing those who disagree with me is wrong that always looking for fault in others, judging them harshly while making excuses for my own actions, is wrong. That going to church and somehow thinking that this makes me a Christian is wrong. That standing back and not lifting a finger to help is wrong. What if, as God says here, everything people think or imagine is wrong? And the point of thinking of it in those terms wasn't then to feel, I don't know, paranoid or whatever, but actually to think, if we stop, if we see this, if we see that everything is wrong, then we realize we don't have to be the arbitrators of right and wrong in society. That's not our job. It's to figure out, you know, point fingers and say, well, they did this thing wrong, they did that thing wrong, whatever. If we realize everything is wrong, then we can lay down our weapons and instead start living as the people of God in a sinful world, inviting people onto the boat. We drop our weapons. We cover over a multitude of sins. We show grace. We pick up the pieces. We give hope and life. This is the time of God's patience. But his patience will come to an end.
doing nothing wrong is not the same thing as doing what is right. Um, there's an author who, from about 130 or so years ago, a guy called Jerome K. Jerome, who's actually a, a comedy author um, from England, I think. Um, he's not, I mean, he wasn't a Christian writer, but he actually was a Christian. But one of the things I loved about him is the fact that he could be very funny in one paragraph and then just switch around and become deeply serious in the next, and then jump back to humor in the next paragraph. Um, and this is something that he wrote one time. We are so busy not killing, not stealing, not coveting our neighbor's wife. We have not time to be good to one another for the little while we are together here. Will the fat, sleek, so-called virtuous man be as welcome at the gate of heaven as he supposes? Well, St. Peter may say to him, opening the door a little way and looking him up and down, what is it now? It's me, the virtuous man will reply with an oily, self-satisfied smile. I should say, I, I've come. Yes, I see you've come. But what is your claim to admittance? What have you done with your three score years and ten? Done, the virtuous man will answer. I've done nothing, I assure you. Nothing? Nothing. That's my strong point. That's why I'm here. I've never done any wrong. And what good have you done? What good? Aye, what good? Do not you even know the meaning of the word? What human creature is the better for your having eaten and drunk and slept these years? You've done no harm, no harm to yourself. Perhaps, if you had, you might have done some good with it. The two are generally to be found together down below, I remember. What good have you done that you should enter here? This is no mummy chamber. This is the place of men and women who have lived, who have wrought good and evil also, alas, for the sinners who fight for the right, not the righteous who run with their souls from the fight. I mentioned Hebrews chapter 11 earlier, and if you read through that, it's listed as the men and women of faith, and you see what they did. If you look at each of them individually, though, you could turn the whole thing around and make it a list of some of the biggest failures in the Bible. You've got uh, Sarah, who laughed at God when he told her he was going to fulfill his promise. You've got Jacob, who was an incredible mess. You've got Moses, who straightforwardly said to God, no, I'm not doing what you tell me to do. Uh, you've got David, who had committed adultery with somebody else's wife and then killed her husband. And the list goes on and on. That's how you could see them. But they are the people who, in their many weaknesses and failures, trusted God and acted. It's why I finished the Genesis passage with the last thing we know about Noah, which is when he got drunk and made a fool of himself. Noah wasn't perfect. Get over it. Um, but he obeyed God and did what God said. When we go out and we seek to love others and to give to others and to invite them onto the boat, we will make fools of ourselves. We'll do dumb things. We'll say things we didn't mean to say. We'll all kinds of stuff. But if we step out in faith, we will be like those people in Hebrews 11, great men and women of faith, because we trusted God and we acted. If you remember, one of the things Jesus said was this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
It doesn't stop with the first one. It continues to the second. Noah, because he trusted God, saved not just himself, but his family and animals, big animals, little animals, scurrying animals, birds. He saved them all. He would gladly have saved more if they would have come. What does it look like for you? I don't know. It's, um, it, no, it says Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. In a sense, Noah had it easy, right? Because God comes and specifically tells him what to do. Build a boat. And sometimes we don't have it as easy as that. That's probably about the only thing he had easy. <laughs> um, I don't know what it specifically looks like for you, but it will fit this. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Let's invite people onto the boat. Judgment is coming. And they need to hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you made a way. Lord God, thank you that you are always, your nature is always to have mercy. You always want to provide a way. You always want to give us an opportunity. Lord, help us to, if we haven't done so already, Lord, to take that opportunity and accept your offer of salvation. And, Lord, now to go out and provide that opportunity to others in the way we live, in the way we talk, in the whatever we do. Lord, thank you for the uh, example of those who've gone before us. May we live as your people. Amen.